Thank you, Jeanette. You know, Jeanette's one of our OGs as well. She uh, was baptized in this baptistry, the first baptism that ever happened in this building. So uh, yeah, thanks, Jeanette. <clears throat> Peace be with you. Yeah. Um, I, I want to share one thing before we hop into the sermon. Um, I'm just going to cut right to it. Starting next Sunday, uh, October 1st, we are going to one service at 10 a.m. Now, listen, yeah, yeah, that is, it's, it's worth celebrating. It also feels like whiplash, and I get that. Uh, I went to a college that um, forever talked about changing its name, and it finally, it was called Baptist Bible College, and then they changed their name to Summit University. It was this huge, expensive, big deal for my, for my college, and they changed their name to Summit University, and then they got sued, and they had to change their name again. And so we were all joking that their sweatshirt should have Velcro letters. Um, and maybe you feel that way a little bit with our church service times right now. Um, but we are, here, here's, here's, here's why this is important. Um, it, when we, we went to two services at Easter uh, of, in April of 2023. And, and if you look at our last five months, our attendance has just been a swirl. Uh, we, we have had Sundays of over 400. We had one Sunday this August of under 200. And that just makes it extremely difficult to plan. And so our sojourn kids are often scrambling. Our volunteers in other places are often scrambling. And we have heard pretty consistently from you as a church family, not all of you. I, I know that there's uh, some consequences to changing to this to, the, to one service. But we have heard from a lot of you uh, about, the, uh, uh, about the dynamic that's been at play uh, over, over this, uh, this journey of, of two services. So uh, we went back to two here in September. And uh, we're, we're, for, for October going forward, we're, we're, we're at one. And here's what we're going to do. We, we have a few ideas and a few strategies and our plan is we're going to pack in here like sardines and we're going to stay at one service until we are forced to do something about that. And so I hope that doesn't prevent you from bringing your friends because we're going to have empty seats uh, because we have more chairs that we can bring into the auditorium. And so we, we think there's a good season in front of us where we can live at one service, benefit from the body being all together, benefit the benefit of all of our volunteers. And uh, I know that there's a consequence for a few of you with the, the earlier service that served you well and then. And I, I, you know, that, that weighs heavy uh, on my heart as well. Um, but we think it's a really healthy thing for us as a church um, for this next season. So starting next Sunday, October 1st, one service, 10 a.m. And then to just sweeten the pot. Uh, over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to have some after parties. So October 1st, this next Sunday, after the service, we are going to have donut holes and cider. Two weeks after that, uh, October 15th, we're going to have apples insider. Two weeks after that, we're going to have jerky and drinks. <laughs> a couple weeks after that, we're going to have churros and frappuccinos. And then, we're, if you can believe it, we're into December. And in December, we're going to have some, some cookies and cocoa. So uh, some after parties to kind of help us linger a little bit, uh, to enjoy the fact that we're all at this place at one time. And, uh, and we are eager for God to add to our number. Uh, we believe that there's a city that needs to be reached. And your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, we want them to come to know Jesus. And we want them to have a seat uh, here. Uh, but this building and its seating capacity is just, it's a little complicated. And so we're going to make the best of it. So mark your calendars. Next Sunday, October 1st, one service, 10 a.m. And uh, if you come at, at 8.30, uh, there's a prayer time that you can join. Uh, so, um, but 10 o'clock is when the service starts. <clears throat> All right. Uh, we're in a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we are now in the meat of this sermon. 
And uh, we saw in Matthew 5, 17 that Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but I did come. I didn't come to just endorse it either. So Jesus says, I didn't come to get rid of the law, but I also didn't come to just give it a thumbs up. I came to fulfill it. And so Jesus then goes into these statements where he takes parts of the uh, Old Testament, the, the way that that culture was understanding the Old Testament, and he begins to, to, to fulfill them, to, to show what, what, where these things were actually pointing to give a, a, a fullness and a wholeness to the instruction uh, of the scriptures. And, and Jesus, and we've been seeing this week after week, uh, Jesus' point is um, that there's a, a lot of people in that culture, the religious leaders especially, who thought, man, if I, if I can just keep the checklist, if I can keep all the laws, then, then you know, look, look, at, look at my righteousness. Look, I've, I've done all the right things. I've checked all the boxes. And Jesus looks at his followers and he says, I'm going to show you that unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the religious leaders. They're, they're, you're not going to make it into the kingdom. Like, it's not going to work out. All of their righteousness, all of their rule following, it's not enough. You need more righteousness than that. You need whole person righteousness, which is a righteousness that is both external and internal. And in one sense, we recognize pretty quickly that we can't ever produce that righteousness ourselves. We, we, need, we need the righteousness of Jesus. We, we need righteousness from outside of ourselves to ever have this kind of righteousness. And that's part of Jesus' point, is if you want this greater righteousness, we need Jesus. But what we don't want to do is then minimize the Sermon on the Mount to just be this instruction that says, here's the bar, you can't meet it, you know, and so, sorry, but good, good thing Jesus does. Now, G Jesus is actually saying that this, this is the good life. He's actually giving us a, pit, a pitch, a vision of the flourishing life. And so last week when we looked at murder, and Jesus says, yeah, they're, they're worried about checking the box of never murdering someone, but I'm telling you the problem is way, way deeper. The problem is actually anger in your heart. That anger in your heart is, a, is, is in the same category of murdering your, 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 your brother. And so Jesus is showing that there's this need for whole person righteousness. We need Jesus for it, but we should also pursue it. We, we should actually long to be people who don't murder people in our hearts, who don't murder people with our words, who certainly don't murder people with our hands. And Jesus says, that's the flourishing life. If you'll run from that, if you'll turn from that kind of anger, it's the flourishing life. Well, today is Matthew part 22, and you heard the verses read just a moment ago, so let's, let's take a look. What, what is Jesus uh, addressing? Quickly, he says, you, you, you have heard it said. You see that in verse 27? He said the same thing back in verse 21. You have heard it said. What's interesting is he does not say it is written. When Jesus is referring to the scriptures, he, he says it is written. But when he addresses these ideas, he says, you have heard it was said. What, what Jesus is pointing to is this. The religious leaders were convinced that they had kept the law by their interpretation, by their standards. It was their cultural commandments, you could say, that Jesus is addressing. If you were to jump forward a few verses in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 43, you, you see this statement where he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's nowhere in the Bible. That, that's nowhere in the Bible. Jesus is saying, these are the ideas that your culture is pumping at you. 
And I'm going to show you what is really the, the idea that Jesus has, like the, the deeper idea. And so you have heard it, that it was said, not it was written. An equivalent to this would be, and you've probably seen them, they've been around for years now, but the yard signs. The yard signs that say, in this house we believe. We believe that black lives matter, that no human is illegal, that love is love, that women's rights are human rights, that science is real, that water is life, that injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And there's a whole bunch of versions of, of these yard signs. It would be like Jesus taking that yard sign and saying, you have heard it said. Now, look, a lot of things on that sign are, are true and right and good. But there's also a lot of mixing of messages that are going on on those signs. And it's like Jesus would take that sign and say, you've heard it said, but let, let, me, let me tell you the full idea here. Let me tell you how the scriptures would inform that kind of a statement. Not that that statement is necessarily wrong. It's just not going deep enough. Because you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder. That's true. You shouldn't murder, but Jesus has something more to say about it. And today, he moves into another subject. His point is that there's a mix of what the culture is saying with what the Bible is saying, and he's going to show the deeper sense of it. Uh, Jesus is revealing what they and what we, that, that we are not going deep enough. Jesus is saying that the problem of sin is not just in the stuff you can see. We heard this last week. We're seeing it again this week. Murder, yeah, that's the outcome with your hands where you murder someone. That's what you can see. And Jesus says, yes, that's correct. Your culture's right. That's wrong. That is sin. But there's also the sin of your heart, the sin that you can't see. So today, as Jesus talks, he talks about adultery. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, that's true. You shouldn't commit adultery. That's the sin, in a sense, that you can see. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery uh, with her in his heart. And so Jesus is saying adultery is wrong, but you know, don't miss this. Adultery is the offspring of sinful lust. That adultery is what is, what produ is produced by a heart that has been lustful. So last week we saw the anger in the heart move to the insults of the mouth, or the verbal insults, and then to murder with, with, with your hands. Today we're going to see that Jesus is saying we have this lustful intent, this, this stuff that's going on in our hearts or in our minds. Our eyes are, are looking lustfully upon a woman or upon another person. And then the, the, the outcome of the, the, the most direct physical outcome is adultery with the body. Jesus is suggesting that adultery is the ultimate and tragic fruit of a really, really poisonous root. And he's saying the culture, it's so easy to focus on the fruit, just that final outcome. And that's what was happening in the Jewish culture. And they all agreed, don't murder. They all agreed, don't commit adultery. And Jesus is saying, that's right, but you're too far down the road. There, there's sin that you need to address before you ever get there. With murder, you need to address the anger of your heart. You need to address the use of your words. With, with uh, adultery, you need to address the lust of your heart and the looking, the lustful looking with your eyes. Uh, the, the Greek word that's used here for lust is actually epithumia. And we've, we've talked about that word. I know you remember everything from every sermon, but you know, we, we've talked about that word quite a few times over the years, epithumia, and it means over-desire. 
And so what Jesus is saying is, is that he, he's, he's addressing the fact that, 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 this is, that this desire, the desire for a man for a woman, a woman for a man, like that, that, there's a natural sense where that desire is right and good. Jesus is pointing to an over-desire, a desire that's inappropriate, that's gone too far, that's in the wrong context. And so he's saying this, this sense of, of over-desire. And that word, epithemia, certainly can be applied to a lot more things than just sexual desire. But Jesus is using it here in addressing, it's in the context of adultery. And so it does seem like he's using the word lust or epithemia in a way that is, is more focused on, on the sexual side of, of things. So most people agree that adultery, that the sin of the body, is opposed to God's good way. Um, but what about looking with your eyes? Well, Jesus says that that's a form of adultery too. Jesus is trying to invite us into this bigger umbrella, this, this, this uh, greater consideration of the way that we are navigating the world. So if Jesus is, is, is kind of exegeting their culture, if Jesus is looking at these statements that existed in the first century and kind of helping, helping the, his followers see that, I, I want to at least take a stab at trying to do that a little bit uh, with, with our current culture. So first of all, yeah, I know you know this, but there is just no way that you can deal with everything uh, that goes on under this umbrella uh, in, in one sermon, especially in a culture like ours. Uh, the second thing I want to say is that I recognize it's a tender subject. That when you're dealing with the, the, the subject of sexuality, there's a lot of brokenness, there's a lot of hurt. Uh, there's a lot of backstories, and so I hope that as I address this and as we walk through this sermon, I, I hope that you receive it uh, with a level of tenderness, even though Jesus is also inviting us into a, into a flourishing life. He's actually calling us away uh, from our, 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 own, uh, our own tendencies uh, to, 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 run, to run opposite of his good way. So uh, Jesus wants us to stop letting lust rule our hearts, rule our eyes, rule our bodies. But boy, do we live in a crazy time. So here's, here's some observations about sex in, in our current culture. I'm going to use a word, schizophrenic, and I do not mean that as like a medical diagnosis at, in any way. I'm, I'm using it as a synonym or maybe you could say shorthand for disorganized or contradictory thinking. And so if, if this word uh, bothers you, I'm, I'm, I'm not using it as like a medical diagnosis. I'm just using it to refer to disorganized or contradictory thinking. So first of all, schizophrenic culture. We have, we have, a, we have a schizophrenic culture. Uh, and and here, here's, here's what I'm saying. And, and these are going to be so, you're going to be like, this is exactly right. You're, like, you're going you're to feel this in your bones. The first thing is that our culture tells us that sex is everything. That sex is absolutely everything. We, we are told that your sexuality is the core of your identity, the core of your meaning. Like, it's where you find meaning. It's where you find your most true identity. Uh, we, we, you know, and, and think about how hard this is to navigate in our culture, how complicated it gets. Uh, every, every year, as we come to the month of June... I get a phone call or an email or someone who wants to talk to try to figure out how to navigate Pride Month, how to navigate maybe what their employer wants them to do, or how they should try to talk to their neighbor or their friends about the nature of Pride Month. And one of the reasons why Pride Month is so complex is because, and I know it happens outside of June as well, but the Pride Movement is putting someone's sexual identity as the most front-facing aspect of their personhood. 
that as they, as they are walking around in the world, that their, 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 most, their most significant sense of self is their sexual identity, who they are attracted to, or maybe who they're not attracted to. And that puts this in this category where it's so front-facing that whether we agree with our neighbor or not, we should be delicate here. Because our culture is presenting this message that sex is everything, that this is the closest thing to your identity. And so if we come in double-barreled shotgun, we come in ruthless and harsh, you, you, are, you are not only losing a standing with your friend, you, you, you're being harmful. Our culture is, is, is communicating this idea that sex is everything. And it is now, and you, you've probably experienced some of this as well, it's now actually considered unjust to stop someone or to suggest that someone should stop from enjoying their sexual desires as long as no one gets hurt. As long as you have consenting adults and no one gets hurt. But, but do you notice what Jesus does in this text? In this text, Jesus says, I'm not just talking about the stuff you can see. I'm saying that even the lust of your heart is toxic. Even the lust of your heart is damaging you. And so Jesus doesn't agree with the vision or the, the idea that it's okay as long as nobody gets hurt. It's okay as long as they're consenting adults. Nobody. J Jesus says, no, no, that's not true. It's, it's, you're not being fed the truth. That it, just the lust of your heart is toxic to you. And Jesus is inviting us to reconsider what our culture is offering us, that sex is everything. But why do I call it schizophrenic? Because at the exact same time, there are other voices, sometimes the same, but other voices in our culture that says sex is nothing. That they look at sex and they say, why are you getting all worked up about this? It's meaningless. It's, it's just casual. It's just fun. Who cares? I mean, look, you know, what, what, what does, porn doesn't hurt anybody. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 20s. What does it matter if I sleep around? The girls that I'm with, they don't mind. They, 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 I, I'm, I make sure. I make sure I get their consent. But, man, like, what, is, what does it matter? Why is everyone so worked up about this? The church is always worked up about this. Christians are so worried about this. And it's this voice of, like, it's, it's just casual. It's just meaningless. It's like the exact opposite of this other message. But listen, I, I'm, I'm not going to get into statistics and things like that. But the results are in. Boy, the results are in in regard to the impact that porn has had in our culture. And listen, that it's, I mean, the Christian, Christian world has been concerned about the porn culture for a really long time. But now it's not just Christians. You, you, you find articles all over the place about the damage that porn does to your mind. And it's not just men. Men and women are both struggling with porn. You know, a couple years ago, um, I remember I was driving into my neighborhood, and uh, Howard Stern, the, uh, the, the radio host, was on the radio, and he was doing, and he, he was, it, it wasn't his show, he was uh, on an interview. And... Um, I'm sure some of you are glad to know that I don't listen to Howard Stern's show. Um, but How Howard Stern was, was being interviewed. And in this interview, this is what Howard Stern said. Howard Stern said, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, when I was a kid, here's how we got naked images. I went up and stole, stole uh, Playboys out of my dad's bedroom. And me and my friends would have, you know, whatever, 20, 20 pictures out of the Playboy magazine. And, and, like, and that, that, that's, that's what we did. He said, now... 11-year-old kids have pornographic movies in their pockets 
24 hours a day, endless supply. And Howard Stern said this, I am the biggest First Amendment guy you'll ever meet. I am all about free speech, but something's got to change. Now listen, if Howard Stern is saying it's a problem, I, I think that we can recognize it, it's a problem. This is not just Christians being uptight. This is a real problem in our current culture. And the, the, you know, the, the results are in. The results are also in in regard to promiscuity. The, the idea of, of sleeping around or casual sex, that's actually a category that doesn't exist in the world. It's a lie that has been perpetrated all over the place. This is the very reason why movements like Me Too are needed. Because this stuff needed to be dragged out into the light. Because the casualness of sex has brought an incredible price tag. The idea that sex is nothing is a lie. But our culture is not the only schizophrenic out there. It's in here too. The schizophrenic church. Th think with me for a second about the church. The church is also guilty of saying that sex is nothing. Uh, in a lot of church contexts, sex is never even talked about. Sex, sex is treated actually as if it's some sort of like a gross, hidden, dark thing that you should you know, save for the person that you're going to spend your life with. You know, so it's, it's like this, this weird message of like, ooh, gross. But, you know, that's for marriage. Like, you'll, you'll like it there. But it's like gross the rest of the time. And, and, and everyone seems to be kind of afraid of talking about it. Instead of recognizing that this is actually, when used as God designed it, it is healthy and it is good, and it can be, it can be healthy, it can be good, it can be fulfilling, it can be the most intimate thing in, in, your, in your married life. It really does lead to a flourishing life when sex is engaged in the way that God's designed it to be engaged. And the church has often been afraid to say that. You've probably heard this a lot of times, but there's so many people who are like, I'm so thankful that the Song of Solomon is in the Bible. Because there's at least some, some place where we can take Christians and say, God's not afraid of this subject. God designed this. This is actually part of the marital covenant, and it's for enjoyment. It's for the good of humanity. It results in children. It results in how we populate the earth. But it's not just for children. It's also for enjoyment. It's, it's good, and it's beautiful. You know, the world says, uh, sometimes the world says that sex is gross. Sometimes it says that it's God, uh, that it is God. But, but God himself says it's good. And, and the church often can treat it like it's nothing. But then what else does the church do? The church treats sex like it's everything. Have you noticed that sexual sin, is, it, it is lifted to the highest, worst, most tragic sin that you could ever commit. It is raised up above every other sin, not by a little bit, by a mile. In, in the Christian world, boy, that is the one sin that if you do that, oh, you are, you are damaged goods. You, you, you are out. That's how a lot of people have experienced the church world, that this idea of sexual sin being dramatically elevated above every other sin. Listen, have, have you noticed something? Have you noticed that in our current culture, the church tends to repel the very people that Jesus drew in, and it tends to draw in the very kinds of people that Jesus repelled. And that's us. We're talking about us right now. That, 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 something's wrong. 
something's wrong about the way that we're navigating this. Because the people that were around Jesus were people that had really complicated stories and they couldn't get enough of him. They wanted to be around him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. Even as he told them, go and sin no more. Even as he said, this kind of a life that you're living is not good for you. They still couldn't get enough of him. Why is it that in our context, whatever we are doing with the truth of God's word, it's repelling the very people that Jesus drew in. And so the way that we're talking about sex, it's not working. It is not working. Sex is not nothing. Sex is not everything. It's it's good gift that God has given us for, for for the good of the world. So we got a schizophrenic culture, we got a schizophrenic church. Then, then we, have, we have complicated marriage. Maybe, maybe you've he- heard this, and this is not just in the church, but the church is, does, does this a lot, that sex is often presented as, if, you know, if, if one, once you get married, it'll be perfect. Well, once you get married, man, sex will be so awesome. Um, you know, sometimes people do this in premarital counseling. It's like, oh man, when you get married, sex is just going to be so awesome. Listen, it won't be. Uh, it will be sometimes, but it won't be what you think it's going to be. It's certainly not like the movies. It's, you know, I've, I've been a pastor long enough. I've done enough marital counseling. It's not like the movies. Um, it, 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 is, it is complicated. There is a lot of sexual brokenness in a lot of people's stories that, that you bring into the bedroom, that you bring into your marriage. And even if you are committed to living a, a, a married life in a faithful way, that doesn't mean that you're problem-free in the bedroom. And so when this, this idea of marriage where it's like, oh, sex will be so perfect there, that, that, that's not always true. It could actually bring out a lot of hurt and a lot of, a, a lot of your backstory. Uh, a few minutes ago, I said that, that, that um, sex can be really healthy in marriage. It can be really fulfilling. It can be the greatest sense of intimacy. But that's not always the case. And when we present that, there are a lot of people that go through incredible disillusionment in their first years of marriage because they thought it was going to be like the movies, because they thought that's how it was going to be. It's not like the movies, but listen, marriage is the only God-designed context for sex. Getting physically naked only makes sense when you are willing to get naked with the rest of your life. Giving someone your whole body should only happen when you've given them your whole life. If you give them your whole body, but you hold back your whole life, do you know what you're saying? You're saying, I want your body, but I don't want you. And God says, that's not my vision for sex at all. My vision for sex is that you give your body to someone that you've given your whole life to. That makes sense. That fits. And when God started this whole thing, he made Adam and Eve, and they were husband and wife, and he gave them this beautiful gift of of sex. And it was meant for the context of marriage between one man and one woman. That's where it's at. You give your whole life, and then it makes all the sense in the world that you give your whole body. That's what God's design is. And so as complicated as it is in our culture, it's, it's the thing to fight for. Now you say, like, well, you know, I, I want to just bring this up. I think it's under the category of, of marriage, but it could fit in a bunch of places. What, what about this idea of consent? 
You know, our, our culture has really gotten serious about this idea of making sure that before you have sex, that you should have consent. I'm, I'm taking classes at, at Duke University, and to take classes there, we had to do this online course about how to have a safe campus. And there were an incredible amount of questions that I had to answer. It's like I had to learn these things, and I had to answer the right questions about what it was like to have sexual relationships in a consenting relationship. It was, it was probably 15 questions on that front, making sure that all the students on Duke's campus understood what, what consent meant. And you just think about consent? Yeah. You, you bet it's consent. You, you bet it's consent. God is all about consent. He's about consent 100 times more seriously than this culture is. He's actually saying that I consent to give you my whole life, that I'm, I'm all in for the entire journey. That's the kind of consent we're talking about. You, you should absolutely care about consent in your marriage. If you roll your eyes because you think that's some sort of a woke idea, listen, God's more serious about consent than anybody is. And that consent is, I'm going to give you my whole life. I'm all in for the whole journey, through all the ups and downs, through all the craziness. You know, in this culture that Jesus is dealing with, married men had freedoms that they could sleep around. And in a lot of contexts, it was not actually considered adultery as long as they slept with someone of a lower class. And women were expected to sleep with no one except for their husbands. And so when Jesus here, he calls out men. He says, if you, he says uh, you've committed adultery with her. See, G Jesus is taught, and what, what he's doing in some ways is, is he's writing a power dynamic. And he's saying, men, you're getting freedom to run around there and sleep with women and not count it as adultery. And your wives are being faithful in their marriages. And I'm saying, yes, the wife should be faithful in her marriage. And guess what? Men, you should be too. You know, I love this idea that in the first century, um, people were loose with their bodies and stingy with their money. And then Jesus shows up and teaches these ideas, and all of a sudden, Christians are stingy with their bodies and loose with their money. They're out there helping people they've never met before. They're feeding the hungry and, 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 and healing the sick. And yet, they're keeping themselves only for their spouse. This, this, is, the, this is the thing, one of the things that changed the world. If you've read Tom Holland's book, Dominion, Tom Holland is an atheist. And Tom Holland wrote a history of the world. And when he wrote, and he just said, you cannot deny how much Christianity has reshaped things. It's changed everything. And one of the things he points to is this sense of, of sexual, uh, uh, sex within the context of marriage. And then complicated singleness. Um, this message is not about singleness. And I know that this is a, a, tender, a tender subject. But I bring it up to say this. Can you see how complicated this is for our single friends? Can you see all of these mixed messages? The culture saying it's everything. The culture saying it's nothing. The church saying it's nothing. The church saying it's everything. Marriage being held up as this like it's going to be so perfect and ultimate when that's not actually true. All, all, all the mixed messages that are flooding in, in you know, they're, swir they're swirling around all of us. Think about being single in this context. If God really says that sex is only for marriage between a husband and a wife, that means that this is incredibly costly for our single friends. And when our single friends make choices to honor God here, boy, they, 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 they should be welcomed and helped and, and encouraged along the way. It is a tough world to navigate. It's tough for all of us. It's tough for the singles. 
Sam Alberry in his book, Is God Anti-Gay? Sam Alberry has done a lot of great work on the homosexual issue and also on just living a life as, as a single person because Sam Alberry is a pastor who is same-sex attracted and he's lived his whole uh, adult life uh, in, as a celibate man. And he deals with all the tensions of honoring God with his body while these things swirl around him. And this is a quote from his book, uh, Is God Anti-Gay? He says, if someone thinks the gospel has somehow slotted into their life quite easily without causing any major adjustments to their lifestyle or aspirations, it is likely that they have not really started following Jesus at all. And that's not just true for the singles, but boy, do I think that they feel that. This sense of like, do you know what the price tag is for me to honor God with my body in this cultural moment? It is hard for everybody in different ways, but it is very, very hard. Now, what I want to spend the rest of our time with is what, what are we to do? If that's the cultural situation, you know, what, what, what are we to do? Well, I want to remember that Jesus is giving a vision of a flourishing life. Please don't miss that Jesus is not talking specifically to the broader culture. He's critiquing the broader culture, but you know who he's talking to? He is talking to his followers. So before you like start getting excited and like give it to him, Matt, give it to him. You you tell all those sexual deviants that they're messed up. Before you get all excited about that, I want you to hear that if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, in these verses, Jesus is calling you out. Jesus is addressing you. Jesus is addressing me. I have the audacity of saying that I'm trying to follow Jesus with my life. Do you know how audacious that is to say out loud? And Jesus is saying, I have something to say to you, Matt Heron. I have something to say to you, the followers of Jesus. He is saying that everyone is guilty in some form. This idea of epithumia, this idea of over-desires, he's saying that it hits everybody. When, when you read this text and you're like, oh my gosh, lust of my heart? Lust of my heart is a problem? Everyone's guilty. Everybody falls under that umbrella. Everyone has violated this standard. And Jesus wants us to have a level of urgency Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, can I plead with you to hear Jesus's call to turn from lust no matter where it's coming from? This idea of over-desire, this idea of epithemia, maybe it's not sexual for you. Maybe it's in regard to, to, to resources, material goods. Maybe it's your own freedom. Whatever it is that you can't live without, that you've got to have, Jesus is calling you to turn from that and to actually trust him, to recognize that he is who you need. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I plead with you to turn from lust from wherever it's coming, from your heart, your eyes, your hands, your feet. Look at what Jesus says in these, in these last verses. Jesus does not mean to literally cut out your eye or to literally cut off your arm. There's some stories in church history you can look up if you want to. There's people who actually did do that. That is not what Jesus means to do at all. What, he, what he's saying is this. He does expect you to take immediate, decisive action to stop lust and the fruit of lust. Not mutilation of the body, John Stott says, not mutilation of the body, but mortification of sin. Mortification means to kill. So not mutilate your body, mortify the sin, kill the sin. 
Jesus means that we take this so seriously that we literally, we, we, we take up our cross. We either die to those sins or we put those sins to death. That, that, that's the work of mortification. Jesus says, if your eye is causing you to stumble, then don't look. Like, function as if you don't have eyes. That's what he's saying. Act, act like you don't have eyes. Now, not everyone struggles with their eyes. Do you notice? Jesus says, if your eye is causing you to stumble. Well, some of you in here, your eyes aren't the problem. That's not what's causing you to stumble. Okay. But if it is your eye, then you should take decisive action, mortify that sin, and function as if you're blind, which means maybe you don't see a computer screen for a while. That's what it means. What about your hands? Jesus is saying, if your foot, if your hand is causing you to stumble, then don't go to those places. Don't use your hands like that. Literally act like you can't walk. Literally act like you can't move your hands. Like figure out how not to go to that place that's derailing you. Not everybody struggles with their feet. Not everybody struggles with your hands. But if you do, Jesus says, take decisive, immediate action. And one thing that you can do today is tell someone. Tell someone. T tell someone you're struggling. Listen, I don't want our church to be a place where if you admit sexual sin, you're, you're damaged goods. That, that's not the message of the Bible. That's not the message of the gospel at all. There, there's invitation for Jesus to come and to heal. And if we can't come to each other with our sins, J James says we, you know, we confess our sins to one another so that we might be healed. We need to confess our sins. T tell someone. Every time that I've talked about my backstory of, in regard to sexual issues, every time I've talked about it with my community group, within two days, I get a text or a phone call from a guy in our group, and they're like, hey, you have time for coffee next week? And I'm like, I know what this is about. Let's do it. Let's talk. Because this is what we want to do. We want to drag it out into the light. Trying to do this by yourself is a bad idea. Don't try to do it alone. You don't have to do it alone. Here's Jesus' point. We are all adulterers. But it's worse than that. Because guess what? We are not just adulterers towards other people. We're adulterers toward God. You know, the Bible is full of imagery of God's people committing adultery against him. Every time God's people run away from him. Re, re, this happens in the Old Testament a lot, but it's, it's referenced in the New Testament too. This idea of God's people committing adultery against him, chasing after other lovers. And what Jesus is pointing to here is this reality that yes, the lust of our hearts and the lust of our hands and the lust of our bodies, they harm you and they harm other people. And that is tragic and terrible. It's one of the reasons why we should have immediate action here. But Jesus says, I've got, I've, got, I've got another thing that I want to put on your radar. Lust does not just have physical effects. It does not just have interpersonal effects. It does not just have communal effects. It has cosmic effects. Remember this idea, it's okay if no one gets hurt? Jesus is saying, you get hurt. Do you, do you notice the words that he uses in these verses? He talks about the fire of hell. What, what, what do you think is going through Jesus' mind when he mentions the fire of hell? Do, do you think he might be saying, listen, follower, the, the price of adultery, the adultery of your body or the adultery of your heart is more than you can ever imagine. It's the very stuff that separates you from God. 
Do you think it's possible that as Jesus says these words, that he's also thinking about the length to which he's going to go to rescue you back? That he's going to go through all the torture of hell for you to be rescued from that sin. That Jesus is going to put himself in your place. See, when we deny our adultery, our physical adultery or our spiritual adultery, we deny the fact that our hearts are constantly running after the wrong things. We're trying to minimize our sin or hide from our sin or manage our sin. Jesus is offering something so much better. He says that if you'll admit your failures and run to him, he will literally switch places with you. He will literally switch places with you. He will take all of your adultery upon himself and he'll give you all of his purity. If you were at the worship night last night, we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that tells us that, that, that God made Jesus to be sin, who was no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. What Paul is saying there is that Jesus didn't become sinful. It's saying that Jesus was treated as sinful so that you and I could be treated like Jesus. Jesus never sinned, but he was treated as if he was sinful. You and I are not righteous, but we can be treated as if we're righteous. We can be covered in Jesus' righteousness. And that is what Jesus offers in his person and work. Jesus took what I deserve so that now that I receive everything that he deserves. I want you to see how the gospel levels the playing ground. And I'll finish with this. There is a scenario that happens a lot in churches with subjects like this and sermons like this. And it's kind of the outcome of a more moralistic sermon. So just imagine that there's a couple uh, here today and the husband is struggling with porn and the wife knows that he's struggling with porn. If this sermon was porn is bad, stop doing it, get yourself together, repent of your sin and come back next week cleaned up. Okay, now that couple leaves and they walk to their car and as they are walking to their car, the husband feels like absolute garbage and the wife could have had her self-righteousness fed. See, I told you, I, I don't do that stuff. Why do you do that stuff? Why do you get in there? Why do you click on that stuff? Where was, where was the good news for either of them? That's not good news for either of them. That is bad news for him and it's bad news for her. It's feeding this, this shame for him and it's feeding a self-righteousness for her. The gospel reminds them of, of both of them, of their condition. It says to the husband, you know what? Your sin is really bad, but it's not so bad that Jesus doesn't come into that and heal it. And he says to the wife, it's good that you're not clicking on those sites. But guess what? All of your righteousness, it's never enough. You, you, you need help too. You are both in desperate need of a rescue from Jesus. So if you're here today and you're the one struggling with porn and there's someone who is sitting beside you who isn't struggling with porn, if there's a spouse who's committed adultery and there's another spouse who didn't commit adultery, if there's a single who's struggling to honor God with, their, uh, with God's design for sex um, in, 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 only in the, in the context of marriage, and there's a single here who isn't, I, I hope that you're all hearing this, this, this call of the gospel upon your life that we, every one of us in this room, we are in desperate need of Jesus's rescue. The gospel invites all of us to come. It is the great leveler. It invites everybody. The gospel always is reminding us of our need and the fact that that need can be fully met in the person of Jesus. All you need is need.
And so we come to this table, this bread and this cup, and we do it every single Sunday because we want to remind ourselves again that it's Jesus, that Jesus is the hope. It's not my failures are so bad, there's no hope for me, and it's not my righteousness is so good, I don't need it. No, we all need to come to this table, and Jesus stands with his arms wide open, the bread representing his body, the cup representing his blood, and he invites you to this table, not because you've lived such a good life, but because Jesus is ready and willing to stand in your place. He's ready to make your heart brand new, and he's ready to walk with you in the newness of life. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for these verses. Super heavy, complicated, maybe more complicated for some than others. But God, I thank you for the, the grace that you pour out in the message of the gospel. This invitation that you give to us to come running to come running if we ever thought that it was our righteousness, that we were, that we were checking the box, that we, we had fulfilled the commandments, that we, were, that we were righteous in our own standing. God, you know, forgive us of that. Help us to realize that we need a greater righteousness that we can never stir up on our own. And then God, for anyone who, who needs to turn from the actions of lust, from the lust of their eyes, from the lust of their heart, God, I, I, I pray that you would give them the courage the courage to talk to someone, the courage to take the first steps of, of uh, uh, plucking out their eye and cutting off their hand. God, we thank you that you invite us into a flourishing life, that what you offer to us is the good life. Would you help us to believe it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.